and welcome to Historias. Today, we are talking with Elizabeth Shesko, Associate Professor of History at Oakland University in Michigan. Her research focuses on 20th century Bolivia, and she investigates the deployment of violence and its effect on the interactions between the state and its residents. Her book, Conscript Nation, Coercion and Citizenship in the Bolivian Barracks was published by University of Pittsburgh Press in 2020. When asked about the revolution, Chesco challenges the idea that the military was overthrown in 1952. Instead, she argues that although some units were dissolved and there was a reduction in military force in the 1950s, conscription occurred year after year and none of the normal functions of the army stopped. In this interview, she also considers what the legacies of the revolution are 70 years later. Liz, thank you so much for coming to the program. And I want to ask you, what are the main contributions of your work? So my work is really thinking about the role of the military in Bolivian society. So I'm trying to think about the role in politics, but also more importantly, the role in nation making, right? How has the military served as an institution that is used to bring together specific segments of Bolivian society? So how have different administrations manipulated the military and military service to bring people into the nation? and to have them do work that they consider productive. So in many ways, this is an assimilatory narrative, right? Of the using military service to bring specifically the indigenous population in and teach them the things that the administration wants to teach them, be that literacy or a sense of patriotism or duty to Bolivian society. But I found in my work just this kind of surprising through line that different administrations over time, starting with the liberals in the early 1900s up through the MNR and the, certainly the dictatorships, whether they were left or right leaning governments really thought military service was going to solve their problems. They really thought that military service was a way to integrate a country that included a lot of very different people and a lot of very different regions. They also saw military service as a way to deal with their infrastructure woes. So they would use military conscripts to build roads and to um, build other, build schools, right? Other buildings. So that kind of idea that we hear of, of civic action in the 1960s um, has its origins way, way earlier um, in the early 20th century with using military forces to literally build the nation. So the main things I'm thinking about with the military is how it's used to figuratively build the nation as this idea of bringing people into this concept of Bolivia and feeling an identification with Bolivia, and also how it's used to physically build the nation, rebuild that infrastructure. The title of your last chapter, chapter seven, uh, has a beautiful title that says, What Different Did a Revolution Make? And that is precisely the question that I want to ask you. So considering that you you see this threat, what was the impact of the revolution? Yeah, I think that was the most surprising thing to me in my research because I came into it with the idea that 
the myth that people hear, which is that the MNR destroyed the military in order to, in favor of militias, and then eventually returned to the military and built things back up. And what I found when I actually looked at the research is that there was no such thing. And that won't surprise people who are listening to your series of podcasts um, and who are familiar with these revisionist ideas of the MNR, but really now thinking of the revolution as more of a, a typical palace coup that kind of went, went awry, right? Um, so because so many people were brought in and because um, different players bailed at the right time, it's, it's able to be taken over by the masses, but the MNR had a lot of support in the military, right? So when we look, if we look back to the, the civil war that happened after, you know, just a couple of years earlier, there are all these military people who are fighting for the MNR to take power and they all go into exile after the Civil War. And so, or if, if we want to call, they call it a Civil War, I guess. Um, other people might call it a failed insurrection, but right, that's whole whole uprising. And so you've got all these military leaders who are in Argentina with Victor Paz Asensorio, right? And who are working with him. And so when he comes back from Argentina after the successful revolution, he's flown by Rene Barrientos, right? The guy who's gonna overthrow him in 1964. And so you have all of these military officers who are allied with the MNR. And so it looks very much like what you see in previous changes of government in Bolivia, where you've got some officers who were out of favor under the old regime, who were put on retirement lists, uh, or inactive lists and weren't currently serving as officers, they're now allied with the people in power. So they come back into the military and resume their previous roles. So there's this whole group of officers who are allied with the MNR who, are who take over after the revolution, but it's nowhere near a devastation of the military forces. Um, a lot of conscripts were released early after the 1952 revolution. So I see it very clearly in the records that whole units are dissolved and sent home early, um, but other units continue their service. So for a lot of people who did their military service in 1952, their service sheet is stamped, released without adequate instruction, right? Because they're sent home early. So there is a huge reduction in military force but conscription just happens again the next year and the year after that, right? There's no pause in the, the typical doings of the military, right? They keep doing all the things they were doing before. Uh, the military magazine is published. The Revista Militar is published after the revolution, right? None of the normal functions of the military stop because of the revolution. There's just a changing of, of who's in charge and which officers have power from the ones who were who were there before. So that's one of the big things that I'm contributing is this idea that is really forever qu hopefully quashing the myth that the MNR destroyed the militaries in favor of militias and showing that the military really does continue through the MNR years. Militias are of course very powerful, right? There's, there's a couple of years where the militias are clearly more powerful than the military. And if they were to have met, probably would have been able to win in a fight. Um, but the military does what it can to 
control that. They offer training to militia members, right? So they're trying to bring them into the military umbrella, right? They say, oh, if you're doing your militia training and you train under these military officers, you don't have to do your obligatory military service, right? So there are a lot of efforts of the military to deal with the threat of these militias that are happening in the countryside and in urban areas and the ones that actually are directly responsible to the MNR. So yeah, my big contribution is really that um, I'm currently working on an article that also thinks about how race is recorded in the military. And so I'm thinking about how that changes under the MNR because we see throughout time that the military is writing down what what race it thinks its conscripts are, right? Whether they're indigenous, mestizo, or white, um, and in very small cases, black. And so I'm kind of thinking about how that changes under the MNR and figuring out that, you know, despite that narrative of indigenous into peasants, that they're still recording race in the same way, at least for the first couple of years. In 1959, the the recording of race, at least in the documents that survive, ends. So there is some break in 1959. I think one of the main contributions of your work is also uh, to show that the military that we tend to think as a very top-to-down institution was also built from below. Can you talk about, about that? Yeah, and we definitely think of the military as a hierarchical institution, and and it definitely was, right? Um, It has certain practices that are instilled into its officers through the process of going to the Colegio Militar and, right, and how that's a very institution of socialization. One of the things that I'm arguing is that a lot of the practices that happen in the barracks are really built by men for themselves, right? So we have to think of this as an institution that brings in a lot of 19-year-old men. This is the formative experience for many of them, especially those who didn't have the opportunity to go to a secondary school, especially not a boarding school where they're having that socialization. So for most men, this is their first time really being outside of their communities and meeting people who are different or similar to who they they are. So just thinking about how this is a very formative institution for them and how the routines and traditions of a military unit can become really important and how they're not controlled by the people who are supposed to be in charge. So yes, there is certainly a lot of power that belongs to the officer corps. But there is also a lot of power in the NCOs who are older conscripts, right? People who have been there a little bit longer and they're recreating traditions, right? So if they were abused when they first started, they're going to perpetuate that abuse and they pitch it as, right, this is what it takes to be a man, right? This is your masculinity. You can endure this in order to show that you're a man. So having that military service is just a huge part of the ideas of what it, of masculinity for men in Bolivia over long periods of time, right? That's again, like a through line. That's not something that's just exclusive to the MNR era before or after. I was always very curious about your title, which I love, Conscript Nation. And I wonder if you wanna talk, why did you pick the title? Yeah, the idea of the title was really to show that aspect of from below, 
right? And from above, right? That you're you're creating this nation that goes from, from both ways, right? So bringing people together through military service, but that that's not something that people from above have full control over, right? It's not theirs anymore. They, once they create those mechanisms and create the institutions that bring people in and around, they lose control of that narrative. And so the idea of conscript nation is definitely not a one that is meant to suggest that everyone in Bolivia does military service, because as anyone knows, that's very far from the truth and always has been, right? Only in the Chaco War did Bolivia really need everyone to take up arms and serve. Um, if every single 19-year-old man in Bolivia at any point in its history actually showed up to do their military service and wasn't excused through a lottery or through whatever, whatever other ways they do, the system would break, right? There aren't enough beds for them. There isn't enough mm -hmm. weapons. There aren't enough uniforms. Um, so it's always been a select few that serve, but it gives a lot of power to those who do, right? So the people who tend to do that military service tend to be from the lower rungs of society in terms of socioeconomic power. But having participated in the military really does give them a weapon to use, right? Once, they, once you've done your military service, you have your paperwork that makes you eligible to vote and to hold office, but it also gives you a bit of power over people who haven't served. So you're saying, you know, I'm the one, and we saw Evo Morales do this when he was first elected, right? He'll, he, would, he stood up and said, I'm the one who wore the uniform, right? You're calling me an indigenous separatist, but I'm the only one on this stage who wore a Bolivian uniform. I'm the only one who took the oath to the flag. I'm the only one who, who fulfilled my duty as a man uh, and as a Bolivian to do my military service. And so it becomes, and you see this throughout time is that people who have done their military service now have a connection to an officer that they can call on when they need help or they have a way to ask the state to do something for them, right? So it's not just a veteran of the Chaco War who can say, I shed my blood for this country, but someone who's done their, their, military, their obligatory military service can then say, look, I served my country. I did my duty as a citizen, and that means you need to help me too, right? I, I have some rights. And so the term conscript nation is very much not about having suggesting that all Bolivians were conscripts, but it's showing the power that conscripts have and also the, um, the power that the state has in calling them to conscription and using it for nation building purposes. I'm really happy you made that reference to Evo Morales because that connects with my following question, which is how do you see what are the legacies of the revolution? and the legacies of the military with the revolution, right? Yeah, I mean, it's the military is still very powerful in Bolivia, right? I mean, we definitely, had we seen the MNR eliminate the military in, term, in, in favor of a militia or eliminate it altogether, you know, going in the route of Costa Rica, right? And saying, we're not gonna have a military, we're gonna invest in education instead and not worry about our borders. Bolivia didn't go that way, right? 
And Bolivia went in the way of continuing to reclaim its access to the sea, right, and to the ocean. And really, starting in the 1970s, you see the military really focusing very strongly on talking about its specific coastline and about saying, you know, we're going to regain access to the sea. Like, it's really interesting to look at the stamps that the military uses over time, because you'll see like different slogans come coming into use and practice. And it's in the 1970s that you really see that, that use of, um, I forget what the exact slogan is that people, that they use, but of reclaiming the sea being the main thing that they're thinking about. So yeah, I think one of the legacies of the MNR is that continued power of the military in Bolivia that we saw in 2019 when Evo left power, right? I mean, the moment that caused him to leave was when the military came out and said, we're not going to support you. Because he had spent a lot of time and effort courting the military and making sure he had support there because he knew that's Bolivian history, right? Um, that the military has a, a really strong and powerful role. So yeah, I mean, I don't see him as General Kaliman is plotting a coup against Evo, right? Far from that. He was reading the wind, right? That's how I see it, at least. Signaling to Morales that the armed forces weren't going to go down with him. Um, and so I think that's part of the long durée is seeing the military as a political actor in Bolivia, right? I mean, the military would never want to be called that. And they have always talked about subordinación y constancia, right? Like, we are subordinate, we're not political actors, we don't vote, we're not part of that system, but they've had a key role in politics. So that I think that's the big lesson that we see from the MNR is that the military is always going to play a big role in politics. And, you know, yes, had the MNR really eliminated it, Bolivia might look like a very different place, but eliminating the military was not even thinkable to the MNR because they wouldn't have come to power in the first place if not for military, right? They all got their political experience in 1943 um, under the, the military government of URL. The big lesson to me is the military is a key political actor in Bolivia and we need to understand it a lot better in terms of, of who is doing what, who is in charge of what, and, and those social connections, right? When we're studying Bolivian politics at the top, understanding who went to school with who and who's cousins with who and who has these random social connections to other people is something that we really, really need to have a good handle on because those connections go through the military, but they go through other society as well. Liz, thank you so much for coming to the program. It was really fun chatting with you, Carmen.